Hi there, and welcome to the Mission Forward podcast, where each week we bring you a thought-provoking and perspective-shifting conversation on the power of communication. I'm Carrie Fox, your host and CEO of Mission Partners, a social impact communications firm and certified B Corporation. This season, we are talking with an impressive mix of nonprofit and foundation leaders, along with some of my favorite communicators about some of the most common challenge points and barriers to moving missions forward. Today's guest is someone I have admired for many years, and as luck would have it, that I also had the privilege to work alongside and learn from in more recent years. Jim Knight has led Jubilee Housing as its president and CEO since 2002, guiding strategic direction for the organization's mission and vision. He also spearheaded the launch of the Justice Housing Partners Fund, an impact investing fund, which you'll hear more about on today's show, and he helped establish the platform of hope. Working with families in Adams Morgan, a neighborhood of Washington, D.C., and a collective impact initiative working with partners to establish citywide housing and services for residents returning from incarceration. Jim is one of those really special leaders who brings a blend of love and heart and really smart business sense to his work. I am so thrilled to get a little time with him today and to share this conversation with you. One more thing before we get to the interview. As some of you may know, I write a weekly column called Finding the Words. Stay tuned at the very end of today's episode for a special reading of this week's column. Jim, I am so thrilled to have a little bit of time with you today to reflect on the work that you are doing now, to reflect on the journey that brought you to where you are now. Thanks for joining us. Oh, Carrie, my pleasure indeed. And it has been quite a joy to work alongside you in this process. Let's start at the top. I gave a quick background about the the what of, of what you do at Jubilee, but you are such an interesting person with a, a fascinating background. And I would love for you to share a little bit about how your journey brought you to Jubilee. Yeah, I appreciate that opportunity. It it is really meaningful to to reflect on on the journey because at different points along the way, each of us might remember how we got where we are differently. And today, at least, the way that that that, that question resonates for me is is I was really at a life change moment uh, that I hadn't really planned, and uh, came to realize that the work that I was doing, while I enjoyed it and found it uh, to be valuable, uh, just was clearly not going to be my long-term future. And so I was soul searching a bit and uh, fortunate to be connected to a faith community in my hometown and, and working with uh, a pastor and, and mentor there, um, you know, raised the question, maybe I should head off to seminary. And he sort of surprised me with his response. He said, maybe you should, but uh, I've got another thought for you. And I said, okay, shoot. And he told me about a year-long volunteer program in Washington, D.C., uh, called Discipleship Year that was connected to the Church of the Savior, which is the same community that created Jubilee Housing. So kind of on a whim, jumped in the car and drove up to D.C. from North Carolina and had a whirlwind tour that afternoon and, and pretty well decided that this is what I wanted to do next. So began a year's internship where I uh, was the low man on the totem pole at Jubilee and was literally the gopher and um, chasing down loose ends all over the, the property community and uh, taking classes in a, in a servant leadership school and, and being part of this sort of web of supports and, and missions. 
maybe the single biggest um, influence in that time was the way I was welcomed by Jubilee families. You know, I'm knocking on the door. I'm here to clear clear your clogged toilet, or I'm here to bring the uh, pest control service to your apartment. Um, not exactly the the best way in the world to meet a new friend. Um, and almost every time I was, well, well, come in, tell me about yourself. Who are you? You're new. Tell me about your life. And the next thing you know, I'm being fed at a dinner table and learning things about life that I had not been exposed to before. That was sort of uh, the turning point where I knew I wanted to be in the work longer, but it was still a bit of a path to get back to Jubilee. What an incredible story. And I, for as much as I thought I knew about you, I did not know that. I didn't know that's how it started. You were reminding me as you were talking about something my my brother shared with me that my brother leads construction management at Stanford. But first, he started his career at AmeriCorps because he said, if I want to be able to lead and build buildings on campus, I need to know what it feels like to hold the hammer, right? I need to like start at the very bottom and, and earn my way up. It's similar how... I'm sure that perspective has stayed with you and informed how you show up as a leader. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there was a, a heart work learning of being with families and hearing their stories and being inspired, inspired by their lives. And then there was, a, um, I think what you're alluding to, a, an opportunity to kind of walk in the footsteps of, of many of the Jubilee um, staff roles or activities. And so learning the business side of the work from the ground up. Jubilee is such a special community and it is inside, for those who are listening, inside the Adams Morgan community in Washington, D.C. For those who don't know, tell us a little bit about that community, Adams Morgan broadly and Jubilee specifically. Yeah, so for many years, decades, in fact, Adams Morgan has been known as one of the most socially and culturally uh, diverse neighborhoods in the district. Um, it has been sort of a destination neighborhood. Uh, both in terms of, of restaurants and, and food from all over the world. Um, it has seen waves of, of immigration uh, through the years. So folks from many different nations calling it home, uh, just quite a mixing pot um, to be sure. And is one of the reasons that I was drawn to it myself. Um, I think over the years, though, as the, the district has seen uh, so much investment in uh, in new infrastructure, including housing and other resources, um, that diversity is is under a bit of threat right now. And so our work is, I think, more important than it's ever been uh, to ensure that that residents who don't have uh, high end incomes are able to continue to enjoy neighborhoods they've lived in for decades. A little bit more specific to Jubilee, um, serving about 600 people a year these days, and. Um, quite a mix across the age spectrum, um, from the youngest children to uh, the oldest seniors. Um, I think the um, the racial demographics tend to be about two thirds African American, about one third Hispanic, um, but all sorts of characters in and out and throughout that mix. And um, kind of a a couple of my favorite qualities of of community members. Uh, just an indomitable spirit uh, to continue to persevere, to to press on, um, and then a crazy kind of joy that comes along with that. So some many of the the families that live in our community are earning some of the smallest salaries around and don't have a, a whole lot of dollars left at the end of the month, and yet there is a kind of a joyfulness and a zest for life that is really contagious. 
I mentioned at the top justice housing, and I know that that phrase, those words are really important to you and they're important to your community. And, you know, here we are on a podcast, a communications podcast, and we're talking about the power of words. I remember having conversations with you around the distinction between affordable housing and justice housing. And in your mind, it was really important to really stake a claim to this concept that is designed to really challenge how we think about housing. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that. Why was justice housing so important to you? Oh, it's such an important question. And then we so appreciated your work and your team's work in helping us um, flesh this out. I guess I will find out with your audience now whether I have internalized the, the answer as well as I think I have. Um, I, I think a couple things led up to uh, the moment where you joined us and helped us work through this language. And and for much of my time at Jubilee, um, you know, for most of the, the 90s and 2000s, early 2000s, affordable housing was not on the map politically. It was not on the map socially. It was not an issue that that enjoyed much support. And um, so for a long time, it was the work seemed to be about teaching and inviting people to understand why affordable housing itself was important. I, I guess I would say after the economic collapse in 08 and 09, that had an effect, and I'm not saying solely that um, collapse, but about that time period, this issue of housing that is affordable uh, began to to climb up the in, income spectrum, and you had middle income people who were earning um, comfortable livings who were also now all of a sudden feeling a, a pinch around affording housing. The district was was on the the popularity of the district was on the rise. Uh, the housing stock was um, not keeping pace with dem- demand, and so prices were just going through the roof, and it wasn't hard to get people to understand why affordable housing was important anymore. But what was hard with that sort of rise in income and, and the more ubiquitous, ubiquitous sense of why it was important, those at the bottom of the spectrum started to lose out. So affordable at median income or just below median income, important for a city, important for a region, but not within the reach of people earning a minimum wage and, and sort of where Jubilee families tend to be. And so we needed to figure out a way to differentiate that need. And so on the one hand, it's how do we differentiate ourselves from this broader idea of affordable. But on the other hand, it's also a human rights issue. It's also critical that each and every person has access to housing that is safe and, and high quality. And so it's a matter of justice if you think about it that way. And so it's justice for the individuals who haven't had it. Um, as you helped us work through this, the first pillar of justice housing is deeply affordable to those with the greatest barriers. And so the second half of that phrase, greatest barriers, began to mean more to us. And so that led us into places like men and women coming home from incarceration who um, carried stigma alongside um, income gaps. And so justice for those people. The flip side, justice for a city. We need to have neighborhoods that are socially and economically diverse. As the equity and inclusion movement has regained our attention, cities and neighborhoods can't be equitable if they're not inclusive. So justice housing helps both that individual who may not otherwise have 
uh, a safe place to be. It also helps everyone by keeping us uh, diverse and inclusive. Did I pass? It sure does. You got it. And it sounds it sounds just as good now, Jim, as the first time I heard you say it. So, you know, what's interesting is we were we we were working together on the justice housing work in 2018, maybe into 2019, but certainly before 2020. And then we think about how much of our world or society or economy has changed and how the impact of COVID and of the racial reckoning that our our nation has had on the election and all the political environment and the divisiveness. You know, there have been so many swirls in our society that I'm sure have had a meaningful impact on your community. Tell me a little bit about how it has been to lead through COVID and how you've had to change. You know, have you, in fact, had to change how you think about and look at the work? Yeah, you asked such such deep questions, Carrie. I, I think um, two, two quick answers and we can unpack a little bit more. But first, it's been disorienting. Nothing is the same. Um, and so a lot of, of change and adapting to be done. Um, you know, for each and every one of us in our daily lives, um, and then also from an organizational perspective. Um, and I think that the second thing I want to say is that I don't feel like I fully know how to answer the question yet. Um, we're still in it. Uh, it's been a two-year saga, and it's not over. Um, and I tell you, the 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 most impactful period of this two-year saga for, for the Jubilee community has been the, the variant, the Omicron period. So that's still fresh on our, on our heels. Um, so I can say a few things about how it's shown up um, in a housing community, uh, you know, to see our, our resident community um, work so valiantly to keep up with a rent obligation um, as wages are, are dropping or being eliminated. Um, to see proud and dignified folks need extra help with food security. Um, that that was the, the really two main areas where we shifted the way that we supported the community. And the first was finding access to food in ways that we had never needed to do before. So whether it was um, meals for children in the after-school program from the you know the Capital Area Food Bank, or whether it was Amazing restaurateurs who would call us and find us on the web and say, "I'd like to bring meals over. Can you, can you receive them?" Um, really, just powerful to see both the the way the need expressed itself, and then also the way so many resources were found to meet that need. Um, still think of lines of people around neighborhood blocks waiting for dinner. You know, in the 21st century in the United States of America, it's it's hard to really take that in. Um, another place where our direct services were needed to adjust, and I'm just just so proud of our team around this was school shutdown, um, as you know, everywhere. And so this virtual learning experiment was very difficult. Um, there was a period of time in the first year where the, the District of Columbia public school system had lost track of 38% of its students, never made an online class, didn't know where they were, how they were, who they were. 
um, because of of gaps, gaps in uh, access to, you know, a, a pad or or if maybe you have a computer but you don't have good internet or whatever those pieces of breakdown were. We were super proud to be able to fill gaps with computers, with you know, internet access and those things, and sitting down with families and sitting down with kiddos and and helping them log on and and be connected. So 100% of Jubilee kids remain connected during that process. But the learning loss is is pretty profound. And and so what do we do about that over time? Um, And then we were one of the first uh, community-based groups to move into a hybrid setting a year or so into the the pandemic. So we were having in-person programming well before the schools reopened. Kids and families told us that that was about the most important thing that that had happened for them. So super grateful for our, our team who who works with the after-school programming and, and all of our team who, who overdid it. Um, but those are two ways that we felt it most. And the learnings, you know, communication, I, I'd have to say I've, I felt inadequate as a leader most of the time. We're a staff of 50 or so. You know, a third of the folks every day are working on the buildings, properties, and a third of the folks are working on direct services. And, and there are those of us who are raising money and and making sure the deposits get to the bank and those kinds of things. We're spread out all over the place. Over half of us were remote for more than a year. We're not back yet. How do you communicate to your your organization? I mean, it's a living being. And I'm I'm not sure we did well enough, um, but we worked as best we knew how. And our all-staff Zoom calls, our staff meetings that were Zoom calls for 40 people were for fun, <laughs> learning, trying different things. And, you know, one thing that comes to mind is is we were on uh, Zoom all staff meetings when George Floyd was killed. You sit there and look at a screen full of 38 faces who are hurting. And what do you do? So I, again, I feel like the lessons learned are, it's going to be a while before I can categorize those, but finding ways to be present. I mean, I think communication ultimately is conveying presence. And so, so important to learn how to do that. Jim, I appreciate that answer so much and the the vulnerability in that answer, but I'm also going to give you a little perspective being outside and having having watched you and your team the last few years is you have one of the greatest gifts that I have ever seen of someone who shows up day after day and takes a step forward, even in the hardest of days, right? Any one, one of those issues that you just laid out would have been enough to just set someone off course. Perhaps in part, Jim, it is your faith. And I'd be curious to ask about that. I know my faith has certainly kept me grounded and focused in those hardest of days, but there is something incredibly noble and special and focused about how you've shown up in this work in these last few difficult years. And I know your staff and your team and your colleagues and your peers and your donors all see that in you too. That slow, focused progress forward the consistency of that means a lot to people. 
I certainly appreciate you sharing that. Um, I, I, I do think you said it, though. It is, it is about showing up. And we don't control outcomes. Um, we certainly do all we can to influence them, and, and that's how we focus. But don't, for a minute, fool yourself into thinking you have real control um, over those outcomes. So, Yeah, that is for sure. <laughs> I, it's, it's funny the way you sort of pose that. Of course, it's easy to say that, that um, my faith is what energizes me. And, and, um, but I, I think I would, I would add, you know, how do you show up when you don't know what to do? And so many of those days, I didn't know what to do. So many of every day, most of us don't know exactly what to do. We can work our way through our task list and, and, and that kind of thing. But in terms of solving the biggest problems, we don't know how to do that. Um, so to me, it's it's cultivating imagination, daring to see things differently, and then just trying to show up faithfully to that new way of seeing. And I don't know if we ever fully get there, but we wouldn't move if we weren't moving towards something new and different. And working towards something so much bigger and greater than us, right? I mean, think about the impact that Jubilee has had and will continue to have, that the the way that, that your community is connected to one another and supports one another, that there is something that's just so special about that, that um, we don't have to have all the answers, right? I think we just need to make sure that we tell people we care about them and we're there for them and we'll show up, you know, as as people need us to, just as we will hope people show up for us in those in those tough days too. It's not a solo sport. None of this is a solo sport, that's for sure. I think one of the the things that struck me in those first volunteer days in my intern year that that has held true all these years uh is is the power of community. It is caring about more than self and and learning to uh invest in others and to allow others to invest in us. Um and and that that connection is I think what what powers it. I, the days that I don't want to come in, um, I think about it's not me. It's it's 600 people in this in this direct housing community, but all the other people that we're all part of and we all touch, and um, that is usually enough to get one foot in front of the next. And then you know the the, the really cool stuff. Um, comes from beyond us anyway. So if we just keep showing up, um, we can expect a happy miracle to happen. You know, sometimes I think people don't know what to do with me because, you know, I set this up as a communications podcast and now we're talking at much deeper issues around humanity and life. And at the end of the day, I think that's what communications is all about, right? I mean, I think there is no communication if there is no relationship. Then you're just spurting information at someone, right? And the last thing that the world needs more of is just useless information. But if we really think about the work we're doing and reflecting on this very short but so thoughtful conversation today, you know, it's really connecting human to human and person to person and thinking about what can we do together. And you and your team are just a great model model for that. What's possible when you all come together? I appreciate you saying that. I, I spurred by your your last comment to to try to make one more connection. Um, you know, communication can live at the functional level of, oh, we've got to get good at it and we need we need some consulting and we need to know the right words. And there's a place for every bit of that. Um, 
but when communication is most effective, it's because it's conveying meaning. It's conveying purpose. And that's what we all need. We all need to be connected to meaning and purpose. And so if the communication is serving as a, a, a strong connector to that which is most real, then we're going to get to be moved by it. And so I, I have such an appreciation for people like you uh, who can help the rest of us learn how to package and offer what's happening to others so that they can touch it and feel it and decide if they want to be a part of it. It's a compliment to you, and it, it's a just a recognition that we need to see communications as more than a tactic. We need to see it as a pathway to, to that which is most important. Well, appreciation right back at you. And um, I can think of no better gym night wisdom to end the show with as we are already there at the end of the show is to think about how communication gives meaning to life. So Jim, thanks for your, your time and your wisdom as always, and for the incredible impact that you and your team are having on our city. Thank you, Carrie. So glad to be with you. Mission Forward is produced with the support of Sadie Lockhart and the Mission Partners team in association with True Story FM. Engineering by Pete Wright. Music this week is by Slipstream and Josh Leake. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, we hope you will consider doing just that for our show. But the best thing you can do to support Mission Forward is simply to share the show with a friend or colleague. Thanks for your support, and we'll see you next time. make a run. I've always loved a good underdog story. So it's no surprise that St. Peter's run in this year's March Madness basketball tournament captured my heart just as it did millions of others who may first have asked, where's St. Peter's? Or as the coach of Duke flippantly said, was St. Peter's a hospital? Indeed, St. Peter's is a hospital in Jersey City, New Jersey. But after their 11-day fairy tale run for the Final Four, it's safe to say that folks may now know this under-the-radar, under-resourced, and largely commuter school with an enrollment of just over 3,000 as the little school that could. Henry Bushnell at Yahoo Sports called St. Peter's the ultimate underdog, a team of overlooked players representing an overlooked school and a student body of overlooked kids. 75% of those students are minorities. Nearly half are Hispanic. Almost all, 99%, receive financial aid. Many are first-generation college students. Many have been disadvantaged to some extent by an unjust society. The university became their pathway to a more prosperous life. End quote. If you're even a little tuned into sports, you're not overlooking the school or its basketball team today. And while their March Madness run has ended, their story will certainly not fade fast because their story represents the very best of us. The St. Peter's Peacocks represent what can happen when we give something our all, when we bring our very best, when we do the work and believe in one another, when we make a run for what we believe in, even if all odds are against us. Folks who have been in a facilitated session of mine know that I love the book Scaling Up Excellence by Bob Sutton and Huggy Rayo. I use it as a teaching tool whenever I can, because of one very simple and profound lesson in its pages. Before scaling up an organization or team, focus on who you are at your most excellent. Know who you are at your core. Know what you stand for and what you don't. Chin up, shoulders back, head high. In just 11 days, 
a little-known team of basketball players from St. Peter's University reminded us who we can be at our best. Strip away the pep band, the cheerleaders, the fancy uniforms. St. Peter's didn't have or need any of those things to get them to the tournament. And you'll see the real heart of the game. You'll see what really matters. In basketball and in life, it's not about the flashiness of the show. And you won't win by hoarding the ball. In basketball and in life, everything works better when you're in it as a team, when your head and your heart are aligned. The beauty of his life is it gives us opportunities to see what we're capable of in the unlikeliest of places, sometimes even in the unlikeliest of basketball games. But you'll never know what you're capable of if you don't make a run for it. <laughs>